Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Welcome back, everyone, to Patriot Coalition Live. I'm Jason Morocek. Thanks for joining us today. Our goal is to create a timeless resource to teach about the U.S. Constitution and the proper role of government, the importance of America's Judeo-Christian heritage, and how to defend against threats to our republic. So before we get into today's episode, I wanted to talk to you about something that you can do today to begin rooting out one of the major sources of corruption in America, and that source of corruption is what we call the three-headed beast of mainstream media, big tech, and big business. Now, these mega corporations are actively undermining our liberties through censorship, canceling, and destroying livelihoods because, well, they don't like dissent, and they don't like people who share truths which threaten their power. Now, as you know, earlier this year, Google, Apple, and Amazon web services all canceled Parler or stopped giving access to Parler. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter regularly suspend accounts when they don't like their posts. So why continue to send your hard-earned money to Amazon when they're canceling and censoring those who stand up for liberty? When you can spend your hard-earned money with freedom-loving companies who share your values and your principles. A company like conservativeeconomy.com. Now, conservativeeconomy.com has tons of companies to shop from with over 3,700 categories of products. So chances are you're going to find what you're looking for at conservativeeconomy.com. Now, if you own a business that you, or if you shop at a business that you love and you think that that business would be a great fit at conservativeeconomy.com, go to our contact page and let us know. And finally, if you own a business, go to the sell here link at conservativeeconomy.com and tell us about your business. Again, that website is conservativeeconomy.com. Please check us out today. All right, so let's get into today's episode. Kind of a bittersweet episode. Uh, you know, we have been talking a lot about Article One over the past several weeks. Uh, it's the longest article in the Constitution for good reason. Uh, a lot of really important authorities are given and restricted. Um, so it takes a lot to go through. So today we are going to finish up. The, the title of today's episode is Article 1, Section 10, Limits to State Powers. So uh, again, bittersweet, but we are going to finish out Article 1 today. And as a, a quick review, again, Article 1 is all about Congress. And even today, as we discuss Article 1, Section 10, which limits the powers of the states, it does so so that the states do not cross into those authorities that Congress possesses, or in some cases, simply extends the limitations that we talked about in Section 9. It extends those limitations to the states. All right. So let's start with Clause 1 of Article 1, Section 10. It says, quote, no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, pass any bill of attainer, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. Now, there's a lot of things in there that it says states cannot do. 
Um, now, some of them you probably recall, and uh, they're familiar to you because we talked about them. They're also things that Congress was limited from doing. And we're going to talk about a couple of those uh, in detail. So let's just go through them really quick. So states can enter into treaties, alliances, or confederations, right? They don't want individual states undermining or, or you know, whether it's intentionally or not, uh, usurping the authority that the United States has in forming treaties, right? So imagine the United States says, oh, yeah, we're not going to do that. But then one of the states uh, makes a treaty with the same uh, country and does it, right? So th things like that um, are not they're not conducive to, to a cohesive and unified country, right? So those things are denied to states. Granting letters of mark and reprisal. Imagine if all the states were allowed to um, give letters of mark and reprisal. And again, if you weren't with us for that episode, letters of mark and reprisal essentially grant the authority to anyone to go and take something or someone that is actually in the waters of another country or on the land of another country and either bring them back here or dispose of them as they see fit. Um, and so, you know, if you can imagine all in that case, in that time, 13 states, but now 50 states being able to do that, it would be chaos. Uh, coining money, they're not allowed to do, right? There should be one, one uh, coin, one money that should be used in all of the United States. Emit bills of credit. Right? We talked about this before, but if you weren't with us, a bill of credit is essentially paper money. It's fiat currency. Uh, it is uh, essentially a bill given by a, a government saying, hey, look, um, we, in exchange for this, you have the credit of you know, however many pieces of gold and silver. It will be exchanged for that. So it's basically fiat currency. So they can't print money. They can't make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. So they want to make it consistent. That, uh, that debts will be paid by gold and silver. And then pass any bill of attainer. We talked about this ex post facto law, or, or this is a new one, law impairing the obligation of contracts. So this was important to them because before the, uh, this constitutional convention and before the constitution, there were several contracts you know, from people in one state uh, with uh, parties in another state. So if you can imagine, you know, all of a sudden the, uh, let's say North Carolina decides, you know what, we're not going to, um, we are not going to be obligated to fulfill a contract that we have with another state. Or, you know, we, we don't think that New York is dealing with us fairly. Therefore, any debts that are owed to New York are now null and void. So, you know, clearly states, we don't want states to be able to impair the obligation of contracts. And the final one was granting titles of nobility. So a lot of familiar things, a couple new ones. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the uh, bills of credit, you know, paper money. So before, at this time, and, and after the uh, War of Independence, several states had large sums of paper currency in circulation. So instead of outlawing the existing paper currency, because people were still using it, you can't just take it away and say, oh, it's of no value and you can't use it anymore. So what they did was they said, okay, no more new uh, bills of credit can be issued from a state. And so they, they expected that, you know, the old bills of credit would fall out of favor as soon as uh, the new constitution, not as soon as, but soon after the, the new constitution and any new forms of money were were created and used, for, you know, obviously gold and silver, they would um, 
the old bills of credit would fall out of favor and they can, um, or they would be destroyed or, or whatever. A lot of them they thought were destroyed in the war of independence. Um, but actually there was some speculation as well that the, there was a, a group of, of speculators who actually either bought up or sold trinkets um, because at that time, the continental dollar, the continental was not worth a whole lot. And so what happens is, is they thought it's a bunch of speculators sold a bunch of, you know, trinkets to get lots and lots of money in order to uh, use that money once we were in a new government <laughs> and they would get paid back the face value of it, not just what it was devalued to. So they said, hey, what, what's the, uh, there's no harm in, in uh, gathering up all this basically worthless paper in case because they were speculators, it was actually going to be paid what was the on the face value. Okay, so the, these variations in, in the value of paper money from one state to another made it extremely difficult to trade with citizens of that other state. You know, you had probably 13 different exchange rates. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, stopping the emitting of bills of credit, stopping the printing of money by different states, kind of tamped down and uh, got us away from all the problems that are associated with that, the paper money. And it's still a problem today, as, as many of you probably well know. And as I mentioned, there was the, the fear that those speculators were able to acquire that mass amount of continental dollars, which were completely depreciated at that time. And um, be, because the language in Article 6, Clause 1, and we'll talk about this later, but it says all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this constitution as under the Confederation. So in other words, any debts that you had, any uh, engagements that you were entered into, um, those are gonna be held uh, to a strict standard and they are still in effect with the new constitution. That is one of the clauses in the constitution that we'll talk about. Um, so there was, there was fear. Uh, this fear was well-founded that some speculators were gonna take a bunch of money once this was in effect and say, oh, good, uh, here's a contract. Um, here, here's you, you said that this was worth this much gold and silver, even though it was totally devalued at that point. I'm going to now turn it in. And since the states could not pass a law impairing the obligation of contracts, like we just talked about, those speculators could make claims on the central government for the face value of those bills in gold and silver. And those, you know, these payments would be made by the central government and would have to be paid through taxes. So the fear was pretty well founded based on what they had come up with in the constitution. They wanted to make sure that somebody wasn't able to um, use it to their advantage. Okay, so let's talk about one other, you know, a piece of this. And I came across this little nugget from Edmund Randolph, who was a, uh, he was a delegate to the constitutional convention and um, he, when he was talking in the Virginia ratifying convention, again, the constitutional conventions where they created the constitution and all 13 states had ratifying conventions where they said, okay, yes, we approve or disapprove. So in the Virginia ratifying convention, Edmund Randolph talks about why it, it, it is so important to have a specific <clears throat> law against bills of attainer. And so as a review, if you weren't with us for that episode, uh, a bill of attainer is when a, uh, a legislature specifically creates a law targeting individuals or groups of people by name and assigns their guilt and their punishment and or their punishment in, in that law. 
So it completely bypasses the courts of justice. Uh, the courts don't have anything to say about it. jury. Their peers don't have anything to say about it. They're basically declaring by law that this person is guilty and what their punishment is going to be. So <laughs> it was completely contrary to the, to the laws of, uh, of you know, Republican government. It was repugnant to it. it uh, a lot of the people are like, why do we even have to say this? This is you know, absolutely ridiculous. Well, this is when Edmund Randolph um, stood up in the Virginia Ratifying Convention and he said this. And this is pretty striking to me. And it was to him, and that's why he said it. He said, quote, there is one example of this violation, meaning uh, the Bill of Attainer, in Virginia, of a most striking and shocking nature, an example so horrid that if I conceived my country would passively permit a repetition of it, dear as it is to me, I would seek means of expatriating myself from it. Meaning he said, I would deport myself. I would get out of this state if it happens again. He goes on to say this, quote, a man who was then a citizen was deprived of his life thus, meaning in this way, from a mere reliance on general reports, a gentleman in the House of Delegates, which is their House of Representatives in, in Virginia, informed the House that a certain man named Joseph, sorry, Josiah Phillips had committed several crimes and was running at large, perpetrating other crimes. So, so this uh, delegate in the House of Delegates basically said, Josiah Phillips is doing all these things. He's committed all these crimes and he's still doing them. So it was just his say so. He goes on to say this, quote, he therefore, meaning the, the delegate, he therefore moved for leave to attain him, meaning to pass a bill of attainer. He obtained that leave instantly, meaning the, the House of Delegates passed it. No sooner did he obtain it than he drew from his pocket a bill ready for that effect. It was read three times in one day and carried to the Senate. I will not say that it passed the same day through the Senate, but he was attainted very speedily and precipitatedly without any proof better than vague reports, without being confronted with his, by his accusers, and witnesses, without the privilege of calling for evidence in his behalf, he was sentenced to death and was afterwards actually executed. Was this arbitrary deprivation of life the dearest gift of God to man, consistent with the genius of a Republican government? Is this compatible with the spirit of freedom? This, sir, has made the deepest impression on my heart, and I cannot contemplate it without horror. Yeah, me neither, brother. So, um, he stands up and gives this reason why it was important that they specifically call out bills of attainer because in his state, they had already passed a bill of attainer and killed somebody because of it without, again, jury of peers, without any uh, sort of witnesses, etc. Okay, so it was extremely important that the states are not allowed to do that as well as the central government. So moving on to clause two in Article 1, Section 10, it says, quote, no state without the consent of Congress uh, lay any, sorry, no state shall without the consent of Congress lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws and the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the treasury of the United States and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress. Okay. So the, this concept um, and some of the language that's in clause two here was taken from the Articles of Confederation in Article six. 
And in that document, it says, quote, no state shall lay any imposts or duties which may interfere with any stipulations in treaties entered into by the United States in Congress assembled with any king, prince, or state in pursuance of any treaties already proposed by Congress to the courts of France and Spain. Okay, so it took some of the language from that. And as you can see, uh, part of the intent here is, was not to frustrate or disrupt treaties that the U.S. had with other countries. Right, so we didn't want to, um, you know, start to lay duties or imposts or exports um, on some countries when the United States is maybe negotiating something else. Okay, so that was part of the intent. Uh, so, you know, the exception that they talked about though was that it was introduced into Virginia. Right, the exception was um, except which what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws, meaning the state's inspection laws. And the reason that they, they allowed that exception was because, you know, Virginia came to the, the convention and they, in, they introduced this proposal because they had their tobacco drying and storage issues there in, uh, in Virginia. So, um, you know, R Rufus King actually, you know, he's from Massachusetts, but he talks to the ratifying convention in Massachusetts to describe why this was brought up. <clears throat> he said, quote, uh, it, the, the document says, Mr. King, in speaking on the inspection laws, said this was introduced to account of the state of Virginia, where it is the custom to lodge the tobacco in public warehouses for inspection and for safety that the owner receives a certificate from the inspecting officer of the quantity of tobacco lodged there, that the state insures it while they're remaining, while it's there remaining from fire or other accidents, that these certificates pass from one to another as bank bills, essentially. You know, they have a, a store of value in that, in that certificate. He goes on to say, Quote, and that the tobacco is delivered to the person who demands it on presenting the certificate, that on receiving it, he pays the charge of inspection and storage and a premium of insurance, which goes into the public treasury and amounts to a duty on exportation. So Rufus King is essentially giving the explanation for why this was introduced. It was important to, uh, to folks from Virginia because the the way that they did their business is they essentially have a, a tax on exports because they have to pay for the storage, the, in, the insurance in case there's a fire, it burns all the tobacco. Um, so they, they, they need these things in order to conduct their business in the tobacco uh, industry. <clears throat> so th th that's why the exception was introduced. Now, there are also a series of authorities and restrictions, you know, that we've talked about uh, in all of, of Article 1. And sometimes they seem to overlap and conflict with each other. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through some of these because we've heard the, you know, the duties and taxes and imposts and excises. And we've heard that a lot. And so I'm going to just kind of break it down for us a little bit. Now, um, here's what I mean by that. In Article 1, Section 1, in the very first clause, the Constitution grants authority to Congress to lay, to quote, lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. So Congress has that authority. Then in Article 1, Section 9, in Clause 5, the power to lay taxes or duties on articles exported from any state is denied to Congress. And then finally, in this Clause 2 of Article 1, Section 10, the Constitution denies states the authority saying that no state 
shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing in, in inspection laws. So there is a lot of, of words in here that are uh, thrown around in several different clauses. Now, it's important to remember that the Constitution was not defining law for the states. They already had laws, and, and they were not starting from scratch like the central government was. Uh, they've been around for a long time. So they still retained any authority that existed previously that they did not agree to limit in the Constitution, including raising revenue. So they, they had their ways to raise revenue, and they still can do that with, with the exceptions of what's in the Constitution. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to the Tenth Amendment. So what does all this mean? All these seemingly conflicting or overlapping clauses. So Congress can lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, but not on exports. However, states can still tax exports, but only with congressional approval. And, and the, the, also the uh, caveat that any revenue that exceeds their costs of the inspection shall be sent to the US Treasury. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. Okay, and then we get into the final clause of Article 1, Section 10, and final clause of Article 1. It says, quote, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops, or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state, or with a foreign power, or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. So this one is, is fairly self-explanatory. So states can't uh, lay any duty of tonnage. What, so what does that mean? You know, so real quick. So before we, we talk about that, this clause actually comes, a lot of it, the concept and some of the language comes from the Articles of Confederation as well in Article 6 and Article 9. Okay, so they're pretty long articles. So I'm not going to read them, um, but that, this is where some of the language comes from. So what is a duty of tonnage that the states are not allowed to lay? Well, duty of, of tonnage is essentially a charge for a ship that comes into, docks at, or leaves a port. And so a lot of times states would say, okay, we're going to charge based on how much um, merchandise you're bringing in. That's the tonnage part. We're going to tax you a certain amount. So states cannot do that. Um, they can't keep troops or ships of war in a time of peace. Uh, and they can't enter into any agreement or compact with another state. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, we make that note that unless Congress says they can, states are not allowed to come to agreement with each other uh, or any sort of compact. And so this is an, intended to prevent factions of states, which might lead to some form of disunity. Okay. And then, of course, it says that states may, if the need arises, engage in some in warfare. Uh, if they're invaded or if they're in imminent danger that does not allow the time that it would take to get approval from Congress. And so this is really, honestly, a, uh, a no-brainer. We all retain that right. We don't have to get a mother may I from anybody to defend ourselves. And uh, the states, you know, are no exception to that. <laughs> okay, so that covers it um, for Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. Um, you know, in summary, these are the, the things that the states are not allowed to do. It limits the state's powers in certain, certain ways so that they do not conflict with those of the United States. And they, these are called out. And, uh, you know, we walk through all of them. 
there, there's quite a few of them, so I'm not going to summarize every single one. Uh, but it, they can't do a lot of the things that the United States can't do. You know, pass bills of attainer, ex post facto laws. They can't all of a sudden say contracts are no longer. <clears throat> they can't just start declaring war on other countries. They can't um, tax countries specifically from their state. Uh, all these things are, are intended to drive unity and make sure that a lot of the uh, the problems that were faced in the Articles of Confederation were solved in the new constitution. A lot of these things that they said the states can't do this, <laughs> it's because the states were doing those and it was causing some serious problems. Okay, so and then in, in total, um, in summarizing Article 1, again, Article 1 is all about Congress. It is the, probably the most important article in the constitution, uh, in my mind, uh, because we are granting a, a very solemn duty to our legislature uh, because we're basically saying, hey, you can make laws that, I, that I'm going to have to live by. So when we give up that authority, that, that authority of you know, sovereignty, individual sovereignty, we give some of that up or we loan it to a government, we better make sure that we're limiting that. We better make sure that um, we know exactly what we are and are not allowing them to do to us, right? <clears throat> so, and that's what Article One is all about. So it, it defines the framework in which Congress can operate and the relationship between Congress and the states, what the states can and cannot do and what Congress can and cannot do. <clears throat> Article One, Section Eight was probably, the, uh, probably some of the most important clauses in Article One because it enumerates all of those powers that Congress is allowed to do. Um, and I will just remind you that anytime you hear you know, a bill is being passed to do this. Think back in your mind. Oh, Article 1, Section 8. Are they allowed to do that? And chances are they're not, I would say at least 75% of the time, maybe up to 85% of the time, they are not allowed to pass that law. So it's something that's important for, for you to understand because how, again, are we going to hold our elected officials accountable if we don't know what they're supposed to be doing? And that goes for the state too, right? If states try things that they're not supposed to do, um, we have to be able to hold them accountable and say, hey, look, that is that is not allowed. So it's important that we review this, uh, important that we understand it. And, uh, you know, hopefully this has given you a, a good sense of, of Article 1. Okay, so if you would like to help support us, please go to patriotcoalitionlive.com slash support um, and, and send us your love. Your support is a big help to us. If you're not already a regular subscriber, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, places like iHeartRadio and Spotify. And we will see you again here next week. Take care.